Welcome, everybody, to episode 15 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Greetings and salutations. Hope everyone's doing well today. Today, we wanted to do a little bit of a continuation from last week. Um, Those some things that we talked about in our uh, discussion on gratitude uh, that sort of uh, led me to uh, the idea of today's podcast, and that is... um, planning or the idea of planning the concept of uh, making plans and sticking to them and aiming for things and goal setting and the like. And so um, to start, I'll tie in the uh, last week's podcast and why, what it reminded me of, and then I figured we could just jump right into it. Um, On last week's podcast, uh, the first thing that came up uh, um, was something that you had said, Dan, about... uh, how when you worked as a barista, was that right? Uh, about 20 years ago? Yes, sir. You would um, you would surprise guests and ask them what they're grateful for? Yep. And then you also mentioned that separately from that, you would sometimes write three things you are grateful for every day. Correct. Which is, uh, I've actually heard that from multiple different um, like self-help gurus and, and other things about how to like sort of improve your outlook on life is to talk about grateful um, things you're grateful for. I'm pretty sure I even did it in like a, like a course, like a, a team building course at work. Um, we definitely, I'll share a story once I'm done here about a, something that kind of reminds me of this where um, and my old uh, coworkers and I, we had to talk about one thing we liked about everyone and that we worked with. Mm. And um, there's this funny joke that my girlfriend, because my girlfriend and I used to work together that we still use because of what she, she liked about me in the meeting. And so remind me to bring that up once we're done here. Um, Because it's it's funny. But uh, and so those things reminded me of uh, that uh, those they reminded me of uh, sort of aiming towards something and then making a plan to achieve it, right. And then the aim is generally to have a more positive outlook on life. And so part of the plan is like, well, how can you do that? It's by having you think proactively about positive thoughts. So you think about things that you're grateful for. Usually you're not thankful for negative things. Like, you know, I'm thankful that there's world hunger and that racism exists. No one says those kinds of things, right? Um, Because that's crazy. And so you're thankful for the good things in your life, the things that make you happy or what have you. And that tends to breed positive emotion. And then you sort of aim your way towards that. And then talking about it as the plan and then you slowly but very surely achieve it and so um and then the second thing was uh when i talked about one of the things that i'm grateful for which is love um love of my family and my friends and uh um and the people around me and uh, it reminded me of a similar thing where it helps reorient me in a direction that is positive for both myself and the people in my life and so it's a good way for me to recalibrate and formulate a new plan from time to time in order to achieve goals that would seem to me to be of benefit to myself and those that, you know, I, I directly affect. Um, and so that's where this came from for me. Um, and yeah, I figured from there we'd kick it off. Uh, I'm curious with you, if you'll tell me a bit about what it is, how, how you feel about planning. Like, are you, are you a big planner? Are you a procrastinator? Do you like to just wing it? What's uh, what's kind of your style? I guess it kind of depends on what I'm doing. Um, and, and in the interest of transparency, there is a distinct difference between uh, what I know and what I actually do. 
So okay. my <laughs> my personal discipline and application of planning uh, varies from time to time. Um, that said, uh, I think when it particularly when it comes to things that are um, not necessarily of a super creative nature. And I'm, I'm kind of coming at this backwards, but I'll bring it around. Um, if you just got you know stuff that you need to get done, or if you are working towards a particular goal, um, whether it's a small or large goal, um, the the best way to to actually get that done is to kind of map that out in in terms of a plan. And really, it's just it's it's creating the thing mentally first, creating the result that you're looking for. And then dissecting what actually needs to happen to you know bring that to life, so to speak. Uh, and and in that sense, it it requires planning. And the better you can get at planning, typically the better your results are going to be. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at there initially. Okay. And so to recap, if I understand, uh, generally you prefer or like to plan with things that you consider non-creative. Is that did I summarize that about right? Yeah, yeah, essentially. And, and well, okay, so for me, and this this may be just a personal thing as a, a creative person, um, like I, I just, I need to make stuff, whether or not I'm consciously doing it or not, I would just inevitably will end up creating something or other, whether it's, you know, woodworking, metalworking, leatherworking, uh, digital assets, filmmaking, audio, all that, just, that's just part of who I am is I got to make stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed in my life that times where I'm really, really um, committed to planning the things that I'm doing, I can get a lot of shit done, but my creative juices don't really flow as well. Okay. So it's kind of a balance for me of, you know, if I'm doing something creative, um, give myself the latitude to just kind of explore and, and see what happens. But if I'm, you know, working a project uh, or, or work in general, you know, if I'm if I'm doing an event, I work in the event industry doing lighting. So if we have an event coming up and, the, you know, I'm getting ready to do a setup, then I get very, very deep into planning in terms of where stuff is going to go, how we're going to get it there, how I'm going to pack the vehicle, uh, all that kind of thing. So if it's if it's a thing that needs to get done that I already know what it is and I just need to execute the steps, then that's, you know, obviously the perfect time to, um, make as detailed a plan as you can. Um, not to say that your plans aren't flexible and, you know, obviously you need to be able to adapt. Um, I think Winston Churchill summed it up the best saying that, uh, plans are useless, but planning is essential. Yeah. Um, and that really just kind of encapsulates the, the mental exercise of, of creating it in your head first, whatever it is, uh, but remaining flexible so you can adapt and overcome uh, when it actually comes to the real world and, and executing on those things. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think it's part of the because I, I make a lot of notes for a podcast. Um, today's actually pretty light. I have about 1200 words. Usually I have close to 2000, I think. <laughs> um, but I probably often only get to about a quarter of it just based on the flow of our conversation. Yeah. Um, but it, it follows that principle you were talking about, um, with Winston Churchill in particular, it's, 
I have an idea of the things that I want to discuss or that I think are important or interesting, and I write them down so that I can remember them and reference them if I need to, but I don't have to go to them. It does, however, give me a good guideline to the flow of the conversation versus just going in completely dark and having to like think in my head on the spot, especially as we record, like, shit, what's a good answer for that? Or like, what's a good question follow up? It's like, okay, well, I have a whole host of things that I may never get to, but at least I've done the work to sort of understand exactly, you know, what it is I may want to counter with or answer, right? It kind of reminds me a little bit, like we always talk about jujitsu. It reminds me sort of of that, like, I'm not gonna, like, if you compete, you may have a, an idea of what you want to do. You want to have a crouch stance so the person doesn't jump guard. You want to get a collar tie and then do an ankle pick. They try and get you into guard. You do a knee slide pass into, you know, half or into side control, and then you mount them and choke them. I win. That's great. But none of that's ever going to actually <laughs> happen, right? <laughs> yeah. But like none of that's never going to happen. However, if you practice it and you go through it and you work on all the different maneuvers within that sequence to get good at them, when they do present themselves individually at different times, all of a sudden it makes things a lot easier for you because you're not flummoxed as to what to do when you get to side control, right? You're like, well, I already knew what I was going to do here, so I'm just going to proceed, even if you get there in an unconventional way. Um, yeah, I like that. Do you find... Would you consider yourself good or bad at planning and why? Hmm. I guess it depends on how we're defining good. That's uh, why I, mean, I asked. Yeah. Is that, oh, yeah what, so when use I your own it, definition. Yeah. Use your own yeah. definition for good. When I do it, it's effective. I think that's the ultimate way to define it. Um, it's maybe not the most detailed as some people who, uh, for example, may enjoy planning. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, the outcome is to you know, be able to execute that plan and get the result I'm looking for. Uh, so when I do that, uh, yeah, it's generally very successful. I hate planning. <laughs> I do not like it at all. It's, uh, I've been a fly by the seat sort of, uh, last minute do things kind of a person most of my entire life, at least my young adult life. And, uh, as I got into my mid to late 20s, I started to realize that that's effective when you're like, when you're in shitty public schools, as an example. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like we've talked about before, like I, you know, I, school was easy for me. So like, I didn't need to plan anything. I could just do it the day of and just never, nothing was ever an issue, you know. But then you could become, I've started to realize that as I've gotten older and things have gotten harder and I've wanted to try and be better at things, like that's a big part of it, is trying to be a, get better at things. I've found that I have to plan more because just winging it doesn't work for me. I tend to have subpar results compared to what I know I'm capable of or what I believe I'm capable of and what I'd like. Um, so it's, it's fun. And, and I, you know, loosely air quote fun there because I've had to basically force myself to plan things out daily for the last like two years in order to, be better, say, at my old job, my new job, um, at jujitsu, my personal life, you know, my relationship with my spouse or my family, uh, my friends and whatnot. Um, and it's interesting to have like a love hate relationship with 
with it because I just don't like to do it. But I've been doing it for so long. Like I have like multiple planners now. I um, have a workout planner. I have a, a daily planner for things I'm going to do in the day. Um, I have a planner for work for my boss to look at. He, I don't know if he looks at it, but I make it so that way he knows what I'm doing and he knows stuff he needs to do if he pays attention. Uh, and every time I do it, I'm like, this is just, I hate this. It's early in the morning. It's like seven o'clock in the morning when I do it. And I'm like, I just don't want to do this. But every time I don't, like my day just gets derailed and the end of the day, I'm stressed and I got nothing done. And I know that when I plan shit, things just go better. Because whenever I have a mo you ever get those moments where like you're kind of overwhelmed with stuff to do? Oh, yeah. And it's like I can just go back to the planner and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to start at the top. I'm not going to worry about what I'm stressed about. I'm just going to say, well, have I done the first thing on my list? No. Well, I'm going to do that. I'm going to turn my everything off and just do that and then just work my way down. And then all of a sudden, everything just gets easier. It's interesting how that works. Um, I imagine that sometime soon, I'll start to move from a love-hate relationship to just like a love relationship for planning. But I think it's such a fundamental like antithesis of my like personal nature. <laughs> I think it'll take me many years to to really reconcile that and actually start to enjoy planning because it isn't something I necessarily enjoy. Um, it just is more of like a something I found to be a necessity that makes me a higher functioning individual. You know. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure you enjoy the results. Um, yes. That, and that that speaks to the concept of of self discipline. And really the way I like to look at self-discipline is doing the things that you know you should be doing when you should be doing them, regardless of how you feel about it at the time. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you if you have a daily planner and you you put down your items for the day, um, you may get to, you know, four in the afternoon, you're tired, you got a headache, you know, whatever. But if you look back and say, okay, I, I committed to myself to do this next thing, um, and regardless of how I feel about it right now, I'm still going to do it. Um, and the, the more you can harness that, I think the more effective that you can be, the more successful your planning is going to be, uh, and just, you know, your life in general. Agreed. It, the daily habit of it is something that um, personally I, I, I've i grown accustomed to. Like I actually do planning on the weekends. And if I don't, like on a Saturday, I actually feel a little bit off for the day because I haven't like written stuff to do, even though I do less things naturally on a Saturday. But mm -hmm. um, you mentioned discipline. And so I'm going to talk about Jocko Willink for a second. My man. Yeah, because he's he's a he's a big proponent. He's got a book called Discipline Equals Freedom. And um, that's had a profound change in my life. Um, and I remember when I first heard it, and I've actually heard people talk about this too, but when I first heard it, I was very confused by the notion that discipline equals freedom. Um, you know, it, on... On a surface level, it kind of seems like, oh, if you're you're being super disciplined, you're just kind of restricting the things that you can do, which doesn't seem like a like there's a lot of freedom in that, right? It seems, <laughs> seems counter like the exact opposite. Yeah, just by nature of discipline being restrictive in and of itself, and it, it's um it's an interesting dichotomy, and uh, um, but, and I've talked about this a little bit before in past episodes, but 
I was in a rut at work and very stressed and unhappy. And I was like, well, you know, I don't got whatever I'm doing is not working. So let's, let's try and figure this shit out. And I just also read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which had a profound effect on me as well. And so I started to, uh, organize my work days because, you know, work, like work isn't workload, isn't constant. Most people, most jobs, you don't go into work and you have the same amount to do at the same times every day. And it doesn't vary, right? Like factory workers on industrial lines might have that. Um, right. I think Fred Flintstone had that working in the quarry. Right. <laughs> um, but most people, you know, you go in and you have lulls in the day and you have hugely busy parts of the day that just overwhelm the shit out of you. And then there's like that deep valley where you're exhausted and you have nothing to do. And it tends to go in peaks and valleys like that. And so oftentimes what I would find would happen is, you know, things that would be considered urgent did not make their way into my in inbox at the same time every day. And so like people would call and they'd, they'd want stuff when I'm in the middle of something, but it would be quote unquote urgent. And so I would handle that. And then I'd get behind on something else. And I'd hit the end of the day and none of the stuff I actually needed to get done would get done. And I'd be like, I come home, my girlfriend would be like, how, what'd you do today? How'd your day go? And I'm like, it was horrible. I got nothing done. And I just feel useless. And I was like, well, and then other days I'd come in and I'd have nothing to do. No, you know, so I was a salesman for years. And so no one would call me back. No one would email me. And I would just kind of like listlessly sit there and like, not really know what to do. And it's like, well, I'm just going to start writing shit out. Like here are the things I have to do every day. This is important. Number one, these things aren't urgent. I actually, at one point, uh, followed a Tim Ferriss um, recommendation in his book. It's, it's the only recommendation or one of two recommendations I followed from his book. He recommends that you set up a um, an auto forward on your email, telling people that you're too busy to answer emails. You're going to answer them like once a day. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, you, you, res you know, you ask that they respect your time so you can be more efficient and you'll get back to them at whatever time. And so I just set that up on my, my work email without telling my boss. <laughs> and, um, it took like all of like one day for someone to get like a, a customer to get angry and to email my boss about it. <laughs> oh. And so she came to me and she's like, you know, you can't do this because clients think you're too busy to take care of them. And I was like, I am. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's why I did the email forward is because I'm actually busy doing other things. My job is to sell stuff, not to answer questions. That's counterintuitive to what my job is. Right. And, um, you know, I, I don't have time to ask questions, answer questions about how, not why someone's bill is the way that it is. That's why you have someone else for that. And, uh, but, um, I started to notice though, that as I went through and did these things and I checked them off that all like my sales dramatically increased. I started to have like more consistent days. People were getting back to me more, um, I, there was very few lulls in the day. And from that, I was able to work out uh, like a something with my boss where I started to work part-time with a full-time paycheck because I was making more money for my boss. And so I basically was able to do kind of what Tim Ferriss suggests in the four-hour work week, which is to reduce your hours. I was Instead of working 40 hours, I was working like 30 or 25. I forget which. It was in between. It kind of depended. But... Um, and my pay increased, which is something that's interesting. And all as a result of that discipline, right? 
And then I turned that into helping our uh, jujitsu instructor, Brian, with teaching kids classes because they're during the day when I used to work and I wanted to teach them. So, hmm. and then that turned into my new job, which I have the, I had the freedom from being disciplined to get this new job that I like you know, very much more. And so it's, it was one of those, one of those times where directly employing the thing that the counterintuitive saying that, you know, Jocko has of discipline equals freedom literally worked for me. I was disciplined in my actual job, which gave me the freedom to pursue a passion that became another job. And now I don't have to do my old job, which I don't like. So um, Dude, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's been, I mean, obviously with a pandemic, um, it, I'm not really doing the job as much anymore right. but, uh, because our job would probably just kill everybody. But um, so it's kind of a bummer at the moment, but uh, yeah, it was uh, as I was writing up the notes, I was like, I didn't, I kind of forgotten about that. And then I realized, Holy shit. Like as a direct result of planning this out, like I didn't mean to, I didn't plan it all so that I would be able to leave my job and, you know, teach jujitsu full time. But it just staying disciplined through it gave me the freedom to do so. And it was hard. It sucked. I had a lot of battles with my boss over it because, you know, what kind of a boss wants to sit there and listen to you tell them that you're going to work part-time for the same amount of money, right? Like th that seems really dumb on their part. Yeah. It's like, I, you know, but it took me to sell them on it. <laughs> yeah. It actually wasn't that hard. Um, in hindsight, I was really nervous at first, but, I just worked really hard. My sales went up and then I was like, look, I'm burnt out. I don't want to be here. So I'm going to work two or three hours less every day for two weeks or a month. And if my sales don't go up, I'll come back to work full time. But if my sales go up, I would like to continue to do this indefinitely. And I'd worked really hard. So there was a reasonable chance that residual would come back to me and I would actually sell more regardless of how hard I worked with part-time. Nice, yeah, yeah. So I, I was banking on that <laughs> and, it, and it actually came to fruition and then I still worked hard. So I, I still managed to keep my sales numbers up and do well, but I knew there was a reasonable, reasonably high success rate because of that fact. Because um, for those who are listening, who are unfamiliar with, uh, with sales in general, um, it, it's not really a constant thing. You have to, you have to consistently be working to generate new people to talk with, but it's really difficult. One of the the hard things with being a salesman is oftentimes you'll have, um, again, peaks and valleys of lots of people will, you'll have like a rush of people who want stuff. And then you'll have a dearth where like no one's buying anything. And that can be seasonal. That could just be maybe on Thursdays every week, you have a shitty Thursday, no one calls you back, but everyone does it on Monday. It doesn't matter. And so the trick is to try and even that out. But if you put in a lot of work to generate new stuff, it takes maybe a week or two, three, it kind of depends on what, um, what profession you're in, but it tends to come back after a while. Like after a while, people will finally follow up with you. They may wait two weeks, but they'll call you back. And so I knew that coming up to this, like if I just worked my ass off for like two weeks before I asked this, that all that stuff would just come to fruition <laughs> and it would just increase. Yeah. I was like, it would increase my chances that this would succeed. And I was like, you know what? And if it does, then I have to work really hard to keep it right. Cause I do one month of good sales. I work part time and then I fail. She's going to make my boss is going to make me come back full time. Right. I was like, so, so it's on me. I have the responsibility. And again, we talk about that personal responsibility, but to make sure that I'm working my ass off when I'm at work, you know, and 
and that was the other thing is that I started to realize as I was being disciplined and as I was making my plans for the day is that two to three hours of the day, I had nothing to do before I made plans and after before when I made, when I didn't make plans, I would just get tired in the middle of the day and just goof off around lunch. And then for an hour after lunch or an hour beforehand. And I think studies estimate that the average office worker spends like three to four hours on Facebook a day. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it was like, well, when I started to plan everything, by the time lunch came around, I took a late lunch at like two, I had all my stuff done. So I had nothing to do. And I was exhausted because I'd gotten all my stuff done. You know, it was very intensive. And I was like, well, what if I just cut the hours that I'm tired and have nothing to do? Like, you know, instead of just fucking off, I could just do more work, but I'm a human. So I, I only have so much I can do right. before I'm just unproductive. And um, yeah, it was a uh, very fortunate. I know a lot of people don't really have the ability to do that, but anyone listening who at least works in an office, I, I guarantee you there's a way for you to work less and make more money by making plans and being disciplined about a way to do it. Um, so I'd recommend just as a side note to do that. It's, um, it's totally worth it. And then start jujitsu with your free time. Cause, <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> uh, it's, because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's quite amazing, but, um, but yeah, do you, um, I've kind of rambled a bit there about how this has kind of worked out for me. Is there, is there a time in your life that you can think of where you've really doubled down on and committed to making plans to sort of change your life and you've seen the benefits of it? You'd mentioned talking about writing about three things you're grat grateful for every day. I'm curious maybe if that's an experience you want to expand upon. Sure. Um, at that time, so a lot of this, um, maybe a little history lesson here, a lot of this circles around in uh, 1997, I got in a pretty nasty motorcycle accident. Um, I was standing still, got hit by a car, my leg was crushed. Uh, so it, it uh, put me out for a little bit, so to speak. Uh, was very fortunate, didn't have any nerve damage or anything, but it was uh, still a pretty significant injury. I had a bunch of titanium in my leg now and, and all that kind of stuff. And prior to that, uh, is when I was first exposed to some of these types of conversations and material, uh, different books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and Tony Robbins and, and all that kind of thing. So when I was recovering from that, I kind of took that as an opportunity to, to test out some of this material in terms of you know positive mental attitude and, and planning and discipline and things like that. So... Uh, I was fairly new into working out just prior to the accident. I've been working out for you know a couple years, discovered the gym and you know lift weights, get big muscles and chicks like it type of thing. Um, so for my rehab, because I didn't have any official rehab, I just kind of had to figure it out on my own. Um, I took that as the opportunity to kind of double down on these principles and, and see how far I could take my fitness, so to speak. Um, and got super disciplined, didn't miss workouts, wrote down every single calorie that I ate, and I planned out all of my meals, and I planned out all of my workouts. I wrote them down as I was doing them. I still have those logs somewhere. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was, it was effective. I ended up uh, entering a natural bodybuilding contest 
uh, important to say natural because there's natural and not natural and the two are yeah. very different. But uh, entered a natural bodybuilding contest in, uh, in 2000 and ended up winning my weight class which was actually nice. very unexpected. I was I was hoping maybe to get top five because the way they do it is for all the competitors that show up in the morning and they do the actual judging and then the stuff that you would see on TV or if you ever go to a bodybuilding show, um, they call it the night show. Um, and that's just more for the crowd. So okay. you get judged in the morning and if you get within the top five, then you get to do the night show. Okay, so really, my cool. goal is just like, hey, I just want to get the night show, top five. I can do that. Because of, be awesome. of all the all the girls, they could see the the muscles, yeah, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, I was I was in front of three thousand people in my underwear. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's very you know a, a tangible result uh, result rather that I could point to. Um, yeah. Nice, dude. That that's amazing. I didn't know that about you. Mm -hmm. And when did you stop uh, professional bodybuilding? Or amateur, sorry, or yeah, uh, na nat nat natural bodybuilding. <laughs> yeah, um, I just did a couple of shows. And the, the thing is, is it's, it's a ton of effort. It's basically all I was doing. Yeah. Like I was, uh, I was working a little bit as a personal trainer to make some money. And then pretty much every other minute of the day was focused in some way toward that goal. Okay. Um, and so, so after I did that in you know 2000, I was like, well, I can I can light up a little bit. Obviously, I'm still gonna be working out and stuff, but um, I, I basically I had the the feeling that I took myself to at least you know 95 percent of my potential. Sure. Meaning, I mean, yeah, you know, I'm a thin guy, so I'm never gonna get huge. I realize that it's just not in my genetics, and that's okay. Um, so to stay that focused was gonna be you know severely diminishing returns. In, in that aspect. Um, but like I say, I was a personal trainer and I, I focused a bit more on the career side of things and ended up getting promoted a few times. And I managed the, uh, the fitness teams, so all the trainers for a couple different gyms, a couple different companies, things like that. So it took more of a career path for several years in the fitness industry. Sure. A couple of questions. Um, these are sort of off tangent from planning, but, um, I've heard a lot of different answers to this. And so I'm curious for you, what was the biggest thing? Because I assume, especially doing well at a, in a bodybuilding competition, that you were able to get yourself down fit enough to where you had, you know, a six pack, something to that effect. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I got to find a picture. It's it. Uh, genetically, I will never be big, but I can yeah. get really, really, really lean. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm curious what you, what was the biggest thing for you in terms of achieving that? Uh, for was me, it just diuretics it was, or no, food? no, no, you didn't, no, didn't do any of that. All of that type of stuff, the diuretics and that nonsense, that's really just trying to shed some of the water weight very briefly before yeah. um, the contest. Uh, very similar to doing a weight cut for mixed martial arts and, and combat sports in general. Correct. Yeah. Um, but prior to that, you want to do something more sustainable. And, and like I mentioned, I mean, I was, I was literally counting every single calorie and my grams of protein and all that. So, you know, I logged everything. I made goals of, you know, I'm going to do this much of a workout. So I want to have this many calories, which theoretically should give me a caloric deficit of, say, 500 calories. And if I multiply that out over the next couple of weeks, I should lose X amount of body fat. Yeah. Um, and then just execute on that plan. 
because from what I understand, the the biggest issue with because you know people in particular, you come up onto the summertime here in the Northwest, everyone's like, how do I get that beach bod? Like, how do I, how do I get those abs that all girls love or boys love on, on the, at the beach? And, you know, you have all those, those plans that you can buy that'll give you the right foods and the right workouts. And near as I can tell, it's really just diet. That's like the biggest thing is just, you need to be able to eat good foods and lower your overall body fat. Uh, diet, right? Yeah, diet's definitely the biggest component. Um, and next step would be caloric expenditure. Yeah. Uh, you just need to make sure that you're burning enough calories. And then uh, tangent to that is your muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And we used to say that's your fat burning machinery. And all that really means is, um, you know, when you're sitting around doing absolutely nothing, your fat stores don't require a whole lot of calories just to exist, like just yeah. the basic metabolism. It doesn't need a whole lot. Whereas muscles require a lot more calories literally just to exist. So the more muscles that you have, the more calories you burn while you sleep, quite literally. Yeah. Um, so by focusing on strength training to build up your fat burning machinery, uh, that becomes a lot more of a, uh, you know, a, a winning calculation in your favor when yeah. it comes to trying to reduce your calories. So. What did you do then to, to burn your fat instead of your muscle when you're in a caloric deficit? Uh, make sure and strength train. That was the thing. And, and the, the idea is, and obviously the actual biology behind this is very complex, but yes. uh, metaphorically, you want to give your body a reason to hang on to the muscle. So for example, let's say your caloric needs for the day are 3000 calories, but you only ate 2,500. Mm -hmm. Well, you got to get the 500 calories from somewhere. Um, and the interesting thing about the human body and, and the function of fat, among other things, is as a caloric store. It's, it's very calorically dense, so it's an efficient way to hang on to calories if you're going to need them later. And for starv that, for starvation, a, yeah. Exactly, yeah. In a survival sense, that's that's why we evolved that way. And your body's going to hesitate to to break into savings, if you will. If, on the other hand, it's looking at all this fat burning machinery that you've got, and it's kind of like you know doing doing a, a rental on a whole fleet of cars that you're not actually using. Sure. You know, you're, you're calorically paying for stuff that you're not using, meaning you have all this muscle, but if you're not using it, your body will break it down, which will then make it more efficient. And ultimately, it will try to balance itself out so that it doesn't need to uh, to have access to as many calories just to you know maintain. Sure. So if you prioritize your fat burning machinery, meaning by strength training, you give your body a signal that, no, 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 we're, we're using this muscle. We need this muscle. We can't get rid of this because we're using it every day. Uh, let's just go ahead and tap into the fat stores and we'll get calories from there. Got it, got it, yeah. That, um, I, my assumption then is that must be a reason why virtually all of our um, hunter-gatherer ancestors were extraordinarily lean it's because they're consistently running around like they would hunt up to 12, 20 miles a day. Sure. Yeah. And then depending on the food that they were hunting for, they it would be 
fairly lean meats and then so they don't get a lot of fat just naturally to begin with um now did you do more of like a high carb or a low carb like keto paleo style diet with your training at that time um keto and and atkins this is actually was the time the time around atkins way back <laughs> when. yeah that's yeah. right um, and that was typically in, in bodybuilding circles, that was more reserved for uh, a couple weeks out before so, a show. Because you're more likely to burn your fat stores at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, but in general, this was still when low fat was all the thing. So yeah. it was make sure you have X amount of protein to sustain your muscles, then get some good carbs in there. And it could be like, you know, white rice and, and whatever. Um Yep. Obviously, times have changed and we've gotten better about um, dietary strategies. Uh, but it was just, for, you know, my, my priority was to make sure I get enough protein to sustain the muscle and then create a caloric deficit and super low fat yeah. was the idea at the time. Um, and I, I definitely want to give a nod to genetics. It's very real. The marketers don't really want to tell you about that. But the reality is um, everybody's genetics are different. Yeah. Meaning um, it happens to be that for me, I'm a thin guy, so I can, you know, my body is very ready to burn off fat. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also slow to build muscle. Somebody who is more of a, a mesomorph or an endomorph, which are uh, you know, different body types. Mesomorph is someone who is uh, prone to build muscle. They get, and, and typically those are the ones that become the successful bodybuilders. So their bodies respond very rapidly to any stimulus that requires muscle growth. They get big, they get strong really fast. Mm -hmm. However, they typically tend not to burn fat as readily. And an endomorph is kind of, it's, it's more the same, but they just tend to really, really hang on the fat stores. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, you kind of end up, a, you know, you, you big around folks. Um, Trino, but, Trino, yeah, one of yeah. our uh, black belts yeah. who yeah, will actually exactly. be, a, he'll be a guest on here in, in the next week or two, hopefully. He's like that. He's, he's been eating a low carb diet for years and he works out religiously and he's just like, I can't, he's got a little bit of, a little bit of a belly. Yeah, and, and that's that's just genetics, which really yeah. in 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 a in an evolutionary sense, that's not a bad thing at all. No. Um, you know, when the when the apocalypse comes, so to speak, skinny dudes like me are gonna be in tough shape. Because <laughs> we're, we're gonna, gonna be scrapping for food, whereas uh, someone who already has some fat stores, they can go a lot longer and then keep on trucking. Right, right. Um, so it kind of depends on the context that you're looking at in terms of, you know, uh Photos of yourself on the internet. Mm -hmm. Well, being lean is probably a good thing, but surviving the zombie apocalypse, mm, not so much. Sure. With all the new, uh, have you do you keep up at all with like the 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 new ways to like train and bodybuild and eat and diet and all that? Have um, you kind of? updated a yourself bit. with that yeah i mean and it's mainly peripherally uh, i listen to a lot of joe rogan and rogan talks about that kind of stuff so i absorb All the a time, lot of that yeah. um which is great you know it's it just happens to be another item of interest for me so i enjoy those conversations and yeah the the methodologies have changed quite a bit yeah um but bear in mind uh to, to set the context human biology has not changed a lick in say two hundred thousand years 
So, you know, all this, uh, you know, new and fancy, and this is the one diet. It's like, well, we're, we're using the same machinery. So it's not like there's going to be a magic pill that is going to revolutionize everything. Um, it's, it's the same concepts. They're, it's a more, more refined understanding of calories in versus calories out. Yep. And you can get deeper into what type of calories that you have and what requirements that your body has. And if you're going full on carnivore, that's going to change your physiology a little bit. Um, but ultimately it's just that caloric exchange. If you're, if you're trying to lose weight, it's a caloric exchange. If you're trying to lose body fat, it's a caloric exchange with a specific prioritization to uh, encourage your body to burn that fat. Right, exactly. Um, I remember when I was in uh, college, a buddy of mine, he did a, like a, what was essentially a weightlifting competition or a, um, like a kind of like a competition you did. It was for, it was for a philanthropy. It wasn't a bodybuilding thing, but he spent a year and got into a search shape. He ended up uh, uh, winning the thing. And it was just like incredible to see his body transformation. But he had mentioned specifically kind of what you had mentioned and that he had done a high carb, low fat diet. So he had a crap ton of rice and chicken for like a year. That's basically (laughs) what he ate and a bunch of different types of protein powders and creatines and the like. But, Mm -hmm. um, and then once like every three months, he'd have like a Michelob ultra and, um, and get super fucked up because, he hadn't drank in months, you know, yeah. <laughs> but the week or two before he, uh, did the competition, he cut out all of his carbs and, um, basically just ate steak. And I remember seeing him before he started it. And then afterwards, and like, that's where the dramatic changes made. And he didn't do any diuretics or anything either. Cause he didn't, he, they can be tough on your body, but, oh, yeah. um, I think he lost like in that two weeks, he lost like 15 pounds and it was all body fat, probably a little bit. I'm sure a good amount of it was water fat, water, but water weight, but, um, the vast majority of it was body fat and he just was like shredded. And, um, that was in, in it was impressive to see like the discipline and the diligence. Uh, I'm curious kind of then what your take is on how you feel about, uh, low carb versus carb style diets, like per your personal preference. Uh, well, for me personally, um, evidence suggests that my body responds pretty well to carbohydrates. Okay. Um, I've done low carb stuff before and it wasn't necessarily all that dramatic, uh, for me in terms of the results and it works, but, um, it's a pain in the butt for sure. And I, I, I count that's something I am grateful for is that my metabolism is pretty quick. And when I do eat carbohydrates, they, they tend to get burned up pretty readily. Yeah. Um, one of the things you'd mentioned I thought was interesting is that, you know, our bodies have kind of haven't really changed much for a very long time. And we've had this push in particular in the U S um, for processed and, you know, refined carbs in all of our foods for at least 50, 60, 70 years, you know, since the forties, right? So 80 years now, it's been a long time. And 
so two things. One, I saw an interesting meme on Instagram. This person, it was a, um, it was a picture of like a, a sack of like wheat or like rice or whatever. And it's like, we feed grains to get chickens fat. And yet we eat bread in order to lose weight. <laughs> and it made me, it made me think of that. It made me chuckle. Cause it's like, okay, like, you know, we have this idea in our culture that, you know, we need to eat all of these carby style foods and cut out fats and then we'll lose weight. And yet, like you mentioned yourself, you respond well to carbs. I don't. I've on two separate occasions without having a caloric deficit have been diligent about being on low to no carbs. And I've lost 14 pounds, 15 pounds each time mm. in the span of a week or two without even noticing it. My body just sheds the fat. I don't even, it isn't like I get, like I get massive amounts of energy. Um, I don't get sick. Like I just, I don't, I don't feel ill or anything. All of a sudden, like one day my pants don't fit. And I realize that I've just lost a bunch of body fat. And cause but I think it's just how my body responds to, to fats versus carbs. And the biggest takeaway I found from it is because I hate diets. I hate the term diet and like the Atkins diet or the, the keto diet even, or the paleo or the Mediterranean or the diet is such a negative connotation to me because it's like, you need to restrict how much food you eat so that you can look good for two months out of the year. <laughs> you know, and my old boss, she was very large for a long period of time. And um, she went on this diet that's here locally. It's uh, called Ideal Protein. Okay. And and I don't know what was all in the diet, but she ate a shit ton of jicama, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is. But it's like a no, water. What is that? It's like a water chestnut. It mm. basic. It looks like it has a similar texture to like an apple without the the outside the the um, the, uh, the skin, okay. and it it tastes like a water chestnut. There's like no flavor to it. It's it's just like a crunchy like that, like a pear too. So maybe like a a pear. It would be something similar too. Um. But she basically was eating like 900 calories a day. And she lost much. (laughs) No, and she lost 100 pounds in a year. Yeah. And like became healthy, you know, quote, end quote. But within three months, she'd put on 60 pounds because she was eating again. And she was constantly terrible to be around because she was just always angry and upset and had a headache. and, And it's like. That's one of the things I dislike so much about this notion of like a diet is that it's like your body needs what your body needs. There, Like you said, there isn't one size that there isn't one pill that works like, which is why I don't like this whole carb push. It's like not everyone should eat carbs. Like there are there are legitimate populations of people who have evolved to not eat carbs. Like the Inuit, as an example, lived off of seal and whale fat and meat for all of their lives. Yep. So. Well, you the give carb them- thing, you got to understand that the that was entirely market-driven. Oh, 100%. You know, refined sugar and flours and things like yeah. that. Cheap, they're cheap. Um, In some, so- some cultures do eat those things. Like a, a large percentage of Polynesian cultures, they have taro and they have um, uh, not potatoes, but uh, um, yams and, and, and sweet potatoes and sugar cane. And they've been growing those because they grow best in those kinds of climates for 15,000 years. And so their bodies, to a degree, are kind of evolved for that. Yeah. So they're, they're going to need that versus something else. But 
like it, it the market like you said is market driven and it, it's I, I hate seeing that stuff it's like just eat whatever the fuck you want but like listen to your body is the biggest thing for me is yeah, it's like that's that's very key is is understand how you're responding to it um and it, well, here's another thing that does take a bit of discipline but if you really want to get serious about that um it's being very consistent for a given stretch of time uh we'll say for example um take everything that you normally eat minus one thing uh you know minus minus bread mm -hmm. um everything else is the same so it's essentially a controlled experiment yep um and to see how your body responds to that i i, I personally i did that one time uh when i was uh, training more heavily i did a, a day and a half fast with uh, somebody i worked with and i, I forget even why uh, but at the time it was just kind of attractive for the sake of the discipline of it yeah. Um, and you know, there's health benefits and stuff. It's like, okay, let's try this fasting thing. Um, so I think effectively it was like two days worth of fasting. And the very first thing I ate when I came off of it, and this is something that you can really test to see how your body responds is after you do a fast or a restriction of some sort, you introduce that one thing and, and see what happens. Um, I got this, uh, apple cinnamon, french bread or something it's like the specialty bread from the, the great oh that sounds company. delicious oh it is it was absolutely amazing it was you know it was a treat for me obviously um and i just just devoured that uh and felt absolutely fine whereas uh you know somebody else i was working with whatever they introduced some simple carbs of some sort and they're like oh man i got all puffy and i got super tired yeah. right away and it's like oh you know they they responded differently um, but the moral of the story is if you can control your diet for a given period of time, see how you feel, and then either, uh, remove or introduce one single thing and see how your body responds, that can give you some clues. You know, it's, it's obviously not fully scientific, but you can get some useful information out of those types of exercises, but it does take quite a bit of discipline. It does. Um, yeah. I do yeah. that. I done, I've done that a few times with, uh, with beer. Cause I don't drink much anymore. And I, I, I drink, I drink quite a bit less since I've, uh, I drink quite a bit less when I start. Um, cause you know, like with anything else, like I'll say, I'll go like a keto style, low carb diet. And then after a few months, like I might introduce a few carbs and just relax a tad bit and then come back on it. And I, I never eat too many carbs cause I just don't really miss them anymore. But, um, especially when I'm really diligent about keeping low carbs, I won't drink beer at all. And, um, every, every now and again, I'll have a beer and without fail for the last like five times so over the last like nine months, I've had maybe five beers and maybe less than that. And every time it just wrecks me. Like I get super dehydrated within like an hour or two of drinking the beer. I sleep like shit, no matter, <laughs> no matter when I drink it. Like I had a beer, I bring some kind of beer last night and it was a good beer. Like it actually tasted good. Usually it tastes bad because I've kind of lost my taste for them, but I had a beer at like six seven o'clock and by the time we went to bed i was still very dehydrated wasn't drunk at all because it was just a beer woke up constantly throughout the night um woke up with like a dry 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 lips um dry throat and drank a bunch of water and had to pee a bunch of times was a little fuzzy this morning when i got up like it, it could just be old age like i could just be getting to the point where whenever i drink i get hangovers now but 
after like, you know, I chugged a glass, I usually drink water in the mornings anyways, just I chug like a glass or something. But after that and having some breakfast, it was fine. But every time I've done that in the last like nine months or so to a year, that's what happens without fail. And I, it's led me to realize that I'm, like you said, I'm pretty sure like introducing whatever is inside a beer, you know, the barley or maybe it's a gluten. I don't know. Um, I'm not convinced. I've not done enough research to know if gluten's actually real. I've heard that it's not. So I don't, I don't know the the um the validity of that but um <laughs> it's a thing i'm sure it's a thing but i remember <laughs> the effect I remember, of it can be questioned but it is a thing <laughs> but I, I heard something about how gluten wasn't actually a real thing and so <laughs> but you know whatever it is um within you know the beer just doesn't it just doesn't agree with me and i used to love beer i used to drink beer all the time sometimes daily for months at a time depending on my age and um and now i look back and i realize it's probably why i felt like shit for like six years is a lots of drinking, but B just because whatever I was drinking just wasn't setting well. And, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me, um, as I've delved into the, uh, like the personal fitness world and, um, like the eating, trying to find the right foods and the discipline it takes to figure that out. Right. Cause it's, I, I cut out bread first when I first started to go low carb. And I just, I stopped making spaghetti. I got rid of pasta and bread because I used to love, I love spaghetti. I was like, well, I got to give up spaghetti, which sucks because then I got to give up bread because I put spaghetti on my bread and then eat it like a spaghetti sandwich. <laughs> Sounds and good. Yeah, it's delicious. And I was like, well, this is going to, this is going to suck, but now I don't care. And it's, I feel so much better for it, you know, um, but it's hard. It's, it's a hard discipline to, to follow. I think that's that's the main key, and uh, um, that actually uh, was one of the things I was going to bring up about planning is that the discipline required to plan properly is, I think, why a lot of people have a hard time planning. Is, oh yeah, for sure. And I, I, an experience that I have at least is when it comes to discipline, that it's almost like an internal switch, meaning. If you have the effective internal motivation for whatever it is you're doing, um, let's say, you know, cutting out bread, um, if you can manage to focus on those reasons and make an actual decision, the importance of the word decision, meaning that there's no room for discussion internally anymore. Mm -hmm. So okay, I'm no longer going to eat bread. That's settled. This is no longer up for debate internally. There's going to be no exceptions. This yep. is just the way things are going to be. Then the discussion is just, okay, how am I going to make that happen? How am I going to you know, deal with cravings and things like that? Versus, let's say you know, have an, an external motivation. Someone tells you that you shouldn't be eating bread. And you're like, well, I, you know, I don't want the, the social pressure, so I'll agree to it, but I really don't want to. Yeah. And that ongoing battle inside your head never goes away. And you're virtually guaranteed to fail. Versus when you when you settle that issue with yourself, then the discussion doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't mean there are times that uh, you're going to be tempted but it's the, the question is never how can I sneak in this one piece of bread versus, um, well, bread's not an option. 
So what am I going to do to either distract myself or eat something else or, or whatever? Right. But you just take that away as an option entirely. And I think there, there's a, it, it definitely feels like a, almost a binary switch internally. Like when that clicks in, at least for me, then it's actually not that difficult to have that discipline because you've, you've committed to that outcome versus just kind of being interested in the outcome. I'm the, um, and there, I'm the same there, way. Okay. I was just going to say that, you know, there, there are plenty of times when I've been interested in something and it very rarely ever works out. Sure. But if I can flip that internal switch and say, okay, this is just how it's going to be, then it's actually not all that difficult. I agree. Cause I'm very, I'm very, very similar. And I think you, you bring up an interesting point that I, uh, that I was uh, kind of uh, grappling with as I was writing on my notes and it, and here's what I came up, up with. Ultimately, I think that it comes down to how bad someone genuinely wants the goal that they're, you know, aiming for. Yep. And uh, also uh, temperament. I think they're separate, but temperament plays a part. True. Um, yes, I agree. And I, I think that... Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about like being honest with yourself and personal responsibility and the like. And, and as I was kind of thinking about planning and how it works and like aiming for a goal and all those kinds of things, it, you know, it's hard because a lot of the stuff we talk about is so intertwined, but I, I do actually believe, and I forget which podcast it was, but I'd mentioned that I think that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but most people actually they either willfully lie to themselves or they don't realize that they're not telling themselves the truth about things that they want. Sure. Um, Cause you can have both. Like so you could actively, like you said, you could justify eating a piece of bread because it's not settled in your brain. So you're like, how can I eat this piece of bread or cigarette smoking is probably a better one. Um, Cause people do that. They'll like sneak a smoke when their spouse isn't looking. Yeah. Um, but it's like, how do, how do they, you know, how do they live with themselves as an example while doing that? How do they justify it? And it's because it's a goal you don't genuinely want. And that's a hard thing to like flip that switch. That's, that's not easy to do, but it's simple. Yeah. And, um, but I thought that was very interesting as I was kind of thinking through that, like, you know, it's, it's kind of been my experience that, uh, people say that they want things much more than they actually want them. <laughs> yep i agree yeah and so it which leads me to the other to another interesting realization it's that people would like things if the effort involved is relatively low that's the other thing yeah it's like it, it, it's no wonder right like if if someone was like can't smoking's bad for you or being fat is bad for you and it's actually really easy to lose weight and it's not very hard to quit smoking. Everyone would do it. If like losing weight was just as simple as getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth and going outside for a walk and that's it. Everyone would do that. There would be, even if it's cold, people would be like, well, all I have to do is just walk around the block. Like that's it. The only people who wouldn't are people who can't actually walk around the block. Right. right There's more yeah. to it. You know, and if it was just as simple as just all you got to do is just, you're just not going to smoke today. But it's never that easy because otherwise everyone would, no one would smoke because yeah. it's fucking terrible for you. And, um, 
and I, you know, it makes me think, yeah, I realize that once people real, realize that actual work is needed to achieve something, they tend to bail out, which is, uh, hard for me to see personally, but, um, I used to uh, chew, chewing tobacco for years, probably like six, seven, eight years. And, um, do it during the day during work. I got good at hiding it. So my boss never found out or clients never found out. Um, and, uh, I just decided, I remember the day I was like laying on the couch with my girlfriend and we were talking about new year's resolutions. I think it was actually around this time of the year, like three or four years ago now. Um, she kind of asked what my new year's resolutions were and I didn't even really think about it. And I was like, one of them, I was like, I want to quit chewing. I just, I don't know why. I still to this day don't know exactly why that one came into my head at the moment. And then that's just what I did. I had a, you know, chew still left to chew. And I was like, well, I'm going to, instead of doing this every day, like I normally would, I'm going to like ration it out over two weeks to make the withdrawals a little bit easier to deal with. So I'll have mm -hmm. half as much as normal, let's say, and then I'm just going to be done. And then two weeks later I had stopped chewing. Well, I think it sounds like, you know, the, the, switch that you had flipped internally is this is the last can of chew yeah that's it so we'll stretch it out a little bit but i am no longer a person that chews yeah um versus i'm someone that chews that's trying to cut back or trying to quit something like that um by flipping that switch internally you see yourself differently yep so if you were to go and buy another can of chew, like what, what is this? I'm not that kind of person that buys cans of chew and yeah. there's a mismatch there. So this, yeah. uh, uh, I have a nerd alert. I have another, uh, nerd story. Um, this reminds is it me Harry of Potter? it is Harry Potter actually. So I have a Harry Potter story. This reminds me of, uh, of Harry Potter himself. He, um, I don't think I've ever asked you this, but you have read all of the Harry Potters, right? No, sir. Okay. Oh my God. I've seen like, I think two of the movies. And that's okay. It. So, um, then I'll briefly explain. So in starting in book, uh, f five, really four or five, it kind of throughout the books, but it really is present in book five. Um, Harry starts to realize that he's having, um, what he believes are visions of Lord Voldemort in his okay. head and what's actually happening. And there's a long explanation for this, but he's basically seen inside of, um, Lord Voldemort's mind. They're connected magically. And he, it, it, Professor Dumbledore tells him, you know, you need to start taking lessons from somebody to stop that connection. And there's a way to do that, but you need to shut off your mind to that. And he's horrible at it for a lot of reasons. Um, and the people around him often accuse him for multiple books that he likes the connection and, you know, likes the to know what Voldemort's up to and he feels special, whatever. And he, most of the time he vehemently denies this. He's like, I don't like it at all. It's horrible. Like I see him killing people. It's really bad. But you actually find out that at some point, like it's pretty clear that he, he finds it useful to be able to see what Voldemort's up to. And so that's part of the reason why he has trouble shutting down the visions. But it isn't until the, like towards the very end of the seventh book, when he actually shuts himself off like he has to forcibly shut his mind off from the visions that he actually starts to move forward towards the denouement of the story and kill Voldemort 
Like it's a very clear shift where one day he's like battling, like staying in the present and um, letting himself go to see what Voldemort's doing. And he like successfully shuts his mind off and comes to the present and chooses a fork in the road, as it were, what he's going to do. And then he chooses the right one and he ends up winning. And he actually has an internal dialogue where he has to make the right decision and he needs to force himself out of Voldemort's mind in order to make the proper decision. And uh, so it, it makes me chuckle because it's that dichotomy of like, it's, or not dichotomy, but it's that choice of the discipline of, he doesn't want to admit to people that he likes it and therefore he struggles with it and can't cast it off, whatever it is. In this case, it's these visions. But once he finally makes the decision, everything starts to move forward for him in a positive direction. Yeah. Right. And for him, it was, you know, it was whatever the, the catalyst was. Um, but it, the catalyst is always interesting for me to see with people. Cause some people like, I don't know why I just quit chewing and it was like, it was not hard for me. I did. I barely, I barely got withdrawals. I didn't get irritable. I don't miss it. Um, I like the smell of like regular chew, but I've always liked it. So like I can smell, like I actually like the smell. It's something from my childhood. Sure. And uh, my dad used to chew when I was a kid, when I was a kid. And so like, I associate that with oh, being, yeah, yeah, being like a, a young kid. Yeah. yeah. And, but I actually don't mind the smell, but I don't smell it and want to dip. You know, I don't, yeah. it isn't like a craving that I have. I just don't care anymore. And some people spend their whole lives never being able to quit. And it's a very interesting struggle um, that I, I, I've often, but I've over the years I've looked into to try, like, I don't understand the psychology behind it. I think that <clears throat> there's, it, or, well, I'm confident that addiction in general is a very complex topic. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's uh, bio-individuality, meaning, you know, literally your own biochemistry may be different and the cravings yeah. that you feel are radically different oh, yeah. than what someone else feels. Um, so when you, if your you know, uh, biochemistry is such that uh, when you get cravings, like, eh, they're all that strong versus they're, you know, life stopping. Oh my God, I need to have this substance, whatever it is. Um, that's going to affect your ability or at least um, the level to which you're going to going to need to bring your own internal decision mm -hmm. um, in order to overcome that. Um, there's also going to be, you know, how fast does a substance clear from your system? You have support groups, what kind yep. of stressors are in your life? You know, there's a, there's a lot of pieces to that. So, and I only say that just to be careful because there are people that struggle deeply with addiction for their whole lives. Um, and again, something to be grateful for is yeah. uh, I you know, by the, the term uh, addictive personality, I don't have an addictive personality, which is really fortunate because both of my parents were addicts. Yeah. So that's my uh, thing <laughs> to be grateful for. My dad, um, uh, my dad has been a heroin addict for most of his life and spent, you know, we've talked about before on the podcast, but he spent time in prison. Um, you know, did LSD first drug he ever did was LSD when he was like 12. Man. That's yeah. And yeah, it's an intro. Like he, 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 he didn't smoke pot until it was like the fifth drug he did, you know, they, you know, back in the seventies, you know, pot was the gateway Oof. to other drugs. And that yeah. was like, that was the drug that he did like last basically. And, um, and I also, I actually have an addictive personality, um, not to the extent I think that my dad does or some other members of my extended family. Cause it, um, 
drug addiction and alcoholism run on both sides of my family, but, um, alcoholism in particular, pretty, pretty strongly. But, um, I, I, I think temperament is a big part. Like you were, you were saying kind of people, the make the biological makeup of people, temperament's a big part of that. Yeah. And, or at least bi- I believe that biology is a big, is a big component of how your temperament has actually made up, right. The kind of the way you tick inside, um, this is a slight tangent that is related to this, but as I was going through and kind of working this stuff up, thinking about the stuff we're talking about here, it made me realize that um, one of the things I assume, because like, you know, the phrase difficult things are often worth doing. Okay. Right. So things are because the reward tends to be pretty high, but most people don't do difficult things because it's hard. They don't really want to put in the work. And so what you have, and I, I, this is my assumption, as I, I assume this is partly why you see a Pareto distribution when it comes to like creative endeavors in particular, right? Is it, so. so most people do nothing because it's difficult regardless of whether they're talented or not. So some people may be talented, but they're lazy. So they, they kind of try and they, they show promise, but they're just lazy. And only a few people actually have the discipline or maybe a better way to put it is the the work ethic to actually push through and succeed to to formulate the plan and stick to it and go and then depending on the subject they may also have talent generally they do it kind of depends on what you're talking about um and so what you tend to see in basically every creative or production output endeavor period is that a very small minority of people produce almost like a disproportionately large percentage of the output Sure. And and you see that everywhere, like between Elton John and Michael Jackson, they alone account for like half of the record sales ever, <laughs> you know, and um, I read an interesting statistic last night. Um, 80%, this is not, not music related, but 80% of the agricultural production in Australia, which is a, a terrible place to grow agriculture given its landscape, but 80% of the production of their agri- agricultural production is produced by 0.8% of their land mass. Wow. Okay. So less, yeah. So it's like, which basically means Australia is pretty big that it's like the size of King County produces 80% of their crops. Is that the only spot that gets any rain or something? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it has a whole bunch of factors. It, it's, it gets mo- a, a consistent amount of rain and it's on like a tectonic plate that, over the last 10,000 years so frequently has, you know, um, had lava come up and give nutrients to the soil. But it's like, you, you see those kinds of, that's not really a person driven thing, but, um, you see that with, uh, you know, with jujitsu, right? Like there's only a few world champions and Gordon Ryan's a great example. He's pretty talented, but he also works way harder than everyone else. He's just the one who puts in more work. And who are the other people who are really good? The other ones who put in more work. Gary Tonin, the death, Dan or death squad in particular, um, Craig Jones, his, his old instructor, um, Lachlan Giles, you know, uh, Hodger Gracie, Andre Galvao. Like these are the guys who work their asses off. And so I said that was a very interesting parallel to that Pareto style, that natural, that, you know, the, the distribution naturally of unequal outcomes. Yeah. Well, I mean, hard work pays off. Um, I think for, for my, in my personal context where I really, um, got a visceral feel for that concept. Um, and what, 
um, who's the guy on Rogan that says, get comfortable being uncomfortable? Might have been Goggins originally. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, um, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. When I first started working out, um, I mean, I was, you know, out of shape, skinny, soft tube guy. Um, but I, I very quickly realized that the more effort I put in, the better the results I would get. Now, there's a delay, of course. You don't just uh, have one workout and wake up swole. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became very viscerally connected that if I do this thing that is uncomfortable at the time, then I get this result at the end. And eventually, while you're uncomfortable, you can connect to that end goal. So you're not thinking about, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sore, I'm tired or whatever. It's I'm moving closer to this mm-hmm. thing that I really want. And additionally, something that uh, that I found works for me a little bit. And I know like Mike Tyson has has touched on this. Basically, when you're doing something difficult like that, you imagine all of the other people who are going to wuss out and they can't hang with that level of work. And it's like your competition is just falling away because, you know, you're outworking them. Yep. You know, it's, you know, Tyson would get up at. Uh, 4.30 in the morning to go run. He says, well, why do you do that? He says, well, I, you know, the other guys are getting up at five, so I got to get up even earlier and put in more work. Um, so if you have, you know, competitive tendencies, keep that in mind. Yeah. You know, when you're in the middle of it and it really, really sucks, just imagine everybody else falling away. It's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep hanging in there. I'm going to keep doing the work. I think uh, uh, John's, I think it was John Smith. He's an uh, Olympic wrestler. Um, he, he said something similar to Mike Tyson. He, he would get up at like four, he'd get up in the middle of the night and go for like a four mile run. And when asked about it, he's like, well, you know, it's say, you know, what two in the morning. He's like, well, it's 11 AM in Russia or how, whatever time it is. And he's like, they're working out right now. So I need to be working out right now. <laughs> yeah. Even in, oh. let alone the fact that what he was actually doing was actually unhealthy because he wasn't getting enough sleep, but <laughs> Still, yeah, it was the definitely mi- a point of, of diminishing returns yeah, there. But the, it was the mindset for me. It was, exactly. it was like, you know, they're putting in the work. And if I don't do it, they're just going to, you know, steamroll me. You know, yeah. and um, it, yeah, it's uh, I, I think that that speaks to something that. Uh, about discipline and the role that it has. In helping you succeed now. Because I think discipline in part is, uh, it isn't, I I think, a temperament issue. It's in part a temperament issue. Um, I'm not temperamentally super disciplined. It's never been something that I've been, I would say, comes easy to me. But it's something that I do because I like the rewards of it. And I I, I understand the use of it. And otherwise, I would have been really disciplined as a kid. Um, Some people are just super disciplined. That's just how they are. Um, They're good at get setting you set them a task and they'll do it and they're hi- those are usually the hyper efficient workers that you know yeah. that like just get shit done they're the ones who can work from nine to five without getting up and you don't know how right <laughs> whereas i can't do that i've never been able to do that i've always been like a i get an hour maybe an hour and a half we're approaching an hour and a half on the podcast here i'm gonna get to about an hour and a half maybe two hours and i'm gonna peter out because I, I just i get too exhausted sure. and i need to recharge right but um you know, teaching yourself, first off, recognizing the importance of that discipline um, and then sticking to it, right? And just 
embracing the suck as it were. Um, exactly. I think that's, I think yes. that's another um, Goggins uh, yeah. saying, or is he like embrace the shit? He says something. Um, <laughs> well, back in the day when uh, my workout partners, we, we actually like made little stickers and shirts and stuff that said embrace the pain. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really it. It's, it's shifting your focus and connecting the parts that suck to good rewards that you're after. Yeah. Uh, and that can push you to, to do more of what sucks. It's like, yeah, I want, I want more of the good stuff. I want to have more results. Uh, and, and once you can internalize that, then, you know, basically it's game on, you know, you, you will get good results. Well, you'll also too, I think if you, a big thing for me, um, when I'm, you know, trying to think of things I want to do in life and I go through and I plan them is I spend a good amount of time, like, with that planning, dissecting what it is truly that I'm asking myself to do. So like, as an example, we talked a little bit about this, I think a few weeks ago, but um, I bought a bunch of resistance bands to do resistance band training because we don't have weights at the gym or, and I don't have them in my house and I'm not going to pay to go to a membership, but they're not even open anymore. So I can't do that anyways. And so I've been learning how to do resistance bands. And it's like, I would like to get a little bit stronger. I don't necessarily know if I want to get bigger, but it's like, what is it I'm asking myself to do though? How do I get stronger? It isn't as simple as once a week, I'm going to go watch a video of somebody do an all body workout. And then hopefully I get big by June. That's not how it works, right? Like you need a plan, but what does that entail? Is it, I can write down that I want to go to the gym every day and do a different body part every day, but I have to truly internalize what the hell that means. Like that means that when I have, cause I do leg days on Monday, when I do lower bodies, that means that as part of Tuesday, my day on Tuesday is to be in pain. That's sure. just part of my day. Part of my day on Tuesday is I may fall out of bed instead of stand up because my ass hurts so bad. <laughs> like I may need to spend a couple, like 30 minutes to an hour stretching out my hamstrings, maybe because they're tight. It kind of depends on, um, the exercise I'm doing or my lower back gets tight because of doing rows and stuff. Like maybe my bicep cramps because I did a hell of a bicep workout and, but understanding those things and internalizing them, I think helps, at least it helps me become okay with the plans that I'm making and not flaking out on them. I think it goes along with that being honest with yourself. I think people, you know, they have this idea of what they want and it's a good goal and I'd love to be in good shape or I'd love to achieve this part of this salary or have this position in my job. And that sounds really good. And then once they realize the work that needs to be put in and what is actually truly required, it's like, well, some of those things, I don't know if I want to do. It's like, if you think about it beforehand, before you, you know, you actually break down, what do I have to do? It makes it a lot, a lot more palatable. Like if I, if, if, like as an example, if you're doing leg day and no one tells you that after doing leg day, tomorrow's going to suck. Like if you just don't know, maybe the first time you've ever done leg day, you just think, oh, it's fine. I've never been sore before. It's not going to be a problem. Look, when you wake up, wake up call. yeah, that literally you're going to wake up in pain. And especially if you're doing like heavy leg day, you're doing a lot of leg workouts. It's like, you may never lift a weight again because that shit's painful. Like there's a reason that there's a leg day. Like then everyone cringes, right? Like <laughs> no one's like, Hey, we got arms today. I'm, I'm sick. You know, like no one's like, Oh, my triceps. I can't do triceps. So no, it's like, everyone's like leg day, fucking leg day. It's, That's it's how the, you can tell the true gym sickos. Those are the ones that look forward to leg day. It's right. Like, oh, you're psycho, man. And it's no other day. It's leg day. And it's like, <laughs> you know, 
they internalize it, they embrace it. You know, once you, in, in some sadomasochist kind of way, you like look forward to that day, everything else becomes easier. And it's like, because you know that that's part of the journey to get whatever it is you want, even if you don't ever achieve it, it, you know, it's a part of the journey. And it's like, this is part of the, this is the sacrifice that I have to make to, yeah. to at least be aiming at the, whatever goal it is I have. Right. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, in bodybuilding in particular, why the hell would anyone ever bodybuild? The odds that you are going to win a bodybuilding competition are pretty small. Like just you, anyone in general, like, yeah. and you actually did it yourself, which is an incredible feat. Um, and it's like, so that's nice that that happened, but you got to embrace those leg days in order to even try. Otherwise you just won't win. Someone who wants it more will do it. Right. And it, um, and that's actually the part of, like I said, I don't really like planning, but that's kind of the part of discipline and planning that if I liked a part of it, that would be it is finding the things that I know are going to suck, but are going to make me a better person. Yeah. And even if, you know, and even if they're not my favorite things to do, or I just don't like them, it's like, well, this is what it takes. And I want to get to the end or at least get close to the end. You know, like as an example with jujitsu, I don't ever plan on getting to an end to jujitsu. Right. But I want to put in all the hard work that's required to be closer than I am today. Yeah. You know, I don't know what that looks like, but I necessarily, like, I don't know how far away I'm ever going to get, but I know what it means to get incrementally better and put in those shitty days of getting smashed and not being able to do techniques and movements and getting hurt and, and whatnot, because I know that at the end of the day and tomorrow, like I'm going to be, you know, in, in a small amount better at least. Right. Yeah. I, I, I try to reframe the, <clears throat> anytime something is uncomfortable, whether it's a workout at jujitsu or whatever, um, that's where you earn your results. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you're doing something like that, whether it's, uh, you know, trying to get bigger muscles or learn a new technique or something, um, any of these uh, physical world activities versus social stuff, social can be different, but any, you want a physical result or, you know, building a table, whatever, you're, you're interacting with the physical world, uh, you realize very quickly that there are no shortcuts. Yeah. Um, so if you can reframe the the uncomfortable parts of a long journey say the journey to black belt um you know we know that anybody that has a legitimate black belt had to earn it yeah and it's it's a whole lot of work and a lot of suffering um so if you are on that journey yourself understand that you are genuinely earning this thing that you're going after so it's it's the putting up with that uncomfortable feeling and, or, you know, drilling the same thing, even though it's boring for 30 minutes or, or whatever. That's the earning portion of it. So yeah. if you reframe the suck into the gain of earning a step towards what you're after, I think that that can help you stick with it quite a bit. I'd be curious to see. I'd love it if someone tried to reframe the different belts in jujitsu instead of like, you know, I, there's a, there's a whole bunch of literature and like YouTube videos about like what to expect at every belt. Like 
a white belt should just survive or a white belt should just show up. A blue belt should survive. A purple belt should develop a game plan and have their A game. A brown belt should refine everything. And then a black belt starts all over something like that. That's like roughly speaking, what everyone says. Yeah. I'd love to see someone reframe all that with all the shitty things like a black belt or a, a white belt drowns. And then <laughs> a blue belt crawls onto the land and then gets squished by a larger animal, you know, and then a purple belt runs from a predator. Right. And then a brown belt is a lazy is, is, is lazy or is bored. Right. And then a black belt becomes a child again. Like it just comes full circle, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. something like that. Right. Or, <laughs> you know, you kind of take all the negative aspects of those things where like, and uh, this is like what you can expect. You can expect to, to die for two years and then you can expect to die for another year or two. And then when you get your purple belt, you're going to be good. But now everyone's going to try really hard. And then when you're a brown belt, you're going to get bored because you're just doing the same thing over and over again to refine it better. And then you get your black belt and you realize that you're just going to start over again and have fun. Yeah. And something, something like that. Right. It, I, I personally, that would resonate with me a lot. Um, so kind of know, like, what kind of pain am I, am I waiting for? What, what's, what's coming down the pipe when I get my purple belt or my brown belt, right? <laughs> like... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think we, uh, have, have convinced people that planning is a good thing <laughs> or made it, made a good case for it. And I think for a lot of people, it's going to be kind of a dumb moment. Like, oh yeah, you should have a plan. Um, but you can refine that concept quite a bit. Yes. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to borrow from the late Stephen Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, the first three habits are, you know, very much in this same vein. Uh, first habits being or habit. Number one is be proactive. Habit number two, begin with the end in mind and habit three, put first things first. Uh, what does that mean? So the first habit of being proactive is understanding that I don't, the, the way he phrases it is in between stimulus and response, you have a choice. Um, so what that means is, you know, you can't control the things that happen to you in the world. You know, stuff, stuff happens to you. Uh, it might start raining on you. Um, and how you respond to that can either be out of habit, it can be entirely emotional, or you can take that little time between the stimulus and the response, how you respond to it, to choose what that response is going to be. And that's super powerful. That's really where, that's where the power begins of being able to make effective changes in your life. Mm -hmm. So knowing that you have that choice uh, doesn't mean life is fair, doesn't mean bad things don't happen, none of that, this is the real world. But there's always a choice of how you respond to a situation. Uh, and when you when you can f uh, firmly internalize that, then you you know you've taken the first step and you've really uh, you know you've, you've grabbed the reins of your life. Uh, begin with the end in mind. That really speaks to you know this initial process of planning. It's like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose how I respond uh, to a goal or, or I'm gonna create a goal. Um, what's that gonna look like? And again, the, the example that Covey uses is that every house is built twice, meaning the architect designs and builds that house on paper and in his head or in the computer nowadays um, in every detail before a single nail is driven. And then based on that first creation, 
you create the physical manifestation of that. So that's the mental process of creating a plan, laying it out on paper in, or on the computer, however it is that works for you, um, and then executing on that plan. Otherwise, it's effectively like, uh, like a boat without a, a rudder. Mm -hmm. You know, life is going to happen. Your emotional situation is going to change. There's going to be different stressors in your life that are going to try and push you all kinds of different directions that have nothing to do with where it is you're actually trying to get. Um, but if you take the time to plot out, uh, these are the steps that are necessary to get me where I want to go. Then you have the tools to, at the moment something uh, changes, you know, it, it starts raining or, or what have you, you can then analyze that based on how that lines up with your plan and how you can adjust that plan to still get to the same end goal. Right, right. Um, if you're, you know, if you're on a boat and you're trying to to go across the lake and the wind starts blowing you off course, you can course correct. The goal is still the same. You may have a slightly different strategy because we have to we have to adjust the rudder so that we're still pointing where we want to go. Right. And then the third habit, put first things first, that's just uh, effective prioritization, which is really, really important because things are going to happen to you that seem very urgent. They're, they're demanding your attention right now. The phone is ringing. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. It's urgent. It's right now. But you need to be able to evaluate in the moment whether or not that's even important toward your end goal. Um, and the, uh, the, the book lays out seven habits, lays out a, what he calls a, a time management matrix. And basically it just, it, it kind of creates a little grid of whether or not something is urgent and whether or not something is important because important it, that's how you measure how this urgent thing is going to affect your end goal, Right. So if it is going to get you a step closer uh, or by, by the contrary, take you a step further away so you need to address it, then by definition, that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, on the flip side, if the phone's ringing and you can see on the caller ID, it's just some telemarketer, that's clearly not important. So what that leaves us with is things that are important and urgent. Well, then you got, you got to deal with those right away. You know, you, you, your kid fell down and scraped his elbow you need to address that right away. It's happening right now and it's your child, so you wanna take care of that. It is by definition important. There are things that are urgent, but not important. And that could be uh, you know, notifications on your phone, all, ki all kinds of distractions online that are uh, vying for your attention. Right now, right now, right now, pay attention to me. But you know that they're just not important. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's where a lot of uh, good refinement can be done. And then there are things that are, um, they're not important and they're not even urgent. Those are the easy ones to get rid of, right? Those are um, like busy work, you know, trying to make yourself look busy um, or, you know, typically Facebook, things like that. Um, and then there are the 
Oh, I'm sorry. The, the important one is things that are important but not urgent. That's where that's where the the meat of this lies. Meaning, um, laying out a plan for your day, for example, is not urgent. That's something that you have to proactively say. Okay, I'm going to do this thing because you know it's important. So by weighing the two factors of urgency and importance, you can then prioritize the steps that are, are uh, that you're laying out for your day. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can always keep that in the back of your mind, not only is this thing urgent and vying for your uh, attention, but more importantly, is it genuinely important? And if you can make your decisions based on those factors rather than just how you emotionally feel about it at the moment, um, that's where your plan becomes truly effective. So. Yep, I like that. When I, uh, in my old job, I went through a, a similar transition to like become more effective. And uh, I didn't, so I haven't read the book you're talking about. Um, and so I didn't quite follow all of what he's suggesting the author is, but I just decided that basically everything that came my way was, unless it was directly related to me needing to sell something. So like someone calls in and is like, sell me something, you know, whatever product we sold. I just deemed it non-urgent and not important. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wholesale. Unless someone calls and asks for me directly about giving me money, I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Which, the, thing about, the thing about the urgency portion of that is that you don't necessarily have any choice in that. Yeah. Those are the things that are, they're proactively vying for your attention. It could be, you know, a coworker stopping by your cube wanting to have a conversation. Yeah. They're right there right now trying to get you to talk to them. And at yep. that point, you need to evaluate, is this important or not? Yep. Um, and, and it I, might, be, might be an I, important relationship. You want to keep going with that colleague or it might be about an important matter. But usually, if they're just stopping by to chat, you have to acknowledge that this is not actually important. Yep. So you want to gracefully get them moving on their way so you can get back to things that actually are important. Oh, yeah. I used to do that. And um, I managed to find a pretty uh, good way to let my coworkers know, you know, that I was busy. I would just, yeah. you know, they'd say, hey, I'd be like, hey, you're like, hey, you know, how's it going? I got a couple of minutes. Um, you know, what can I do for you? Something like that. And then they'd usually speed up. But because I, I worked in the insurance industry, like car insurance, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so... Whenever somebody, whenever a customer called, it was always urgent to them. Yep. Oh, yeah. Right. Because if they didn't get to know whatever their question was now, it was a problem. And in my experience, personally, it was almost universally never actually urgent or important for that matter, quite frankly. Um, well, again, the urgency is kind of that's that's the frame of, of the uh, how that fits into time. Yeah. It wants something right now. You, you still have to figure out if it's important or not. Yep. But it is right now trying to get you to do something. Yeah. The, um, this is one of the things that actually is kind of a side tangent. One of the things that kind of burned me out of the insurance industry was that, um, with the exception of somebody who was like in a, in an act, let's say you call and you're like, Hey, Bo, my, my home is burning down right now. Or, hey, Bo, I was just T-boned by another car. Those things are both urgent and important. Yeah. But I'm not the one to call. You call the police. <laughs> That's 
basically outside of that, a question about your coverage, uh, paying your bill, or whatever else people would call about, given what my actual job was, wasn't important to me. Like, because it, it, we have people for that. Like, my yeah, coworkers yeah, yeah. dealt with that. And, but insurance is one of those industries where it's so convoluted and people are spending lots of money on it that every, if they have to call, it's important because you're spending your time to call and ask about your bill. Like you're probably not happy and you're paying money and you don't want to, and you legally have to in this state. And so it's an important and urgent issue, especially if your bills do like tomorrow, then it's like a problem, right? There you go, yeah. Even though legally insure most insurance, not legally, but basically all insurance companies will extend coverage far past the date you're supposed to pay if you don't pay. Um, but I, I remember running into issues with my boss in particular, because like, I'm trying to do my job and people would call and ask for me because they like to talk to me and they're like, Hey, why is, why did my bill change? And I'd be like, I don't know. And then I transfer them because I don't know. And it's not my job to figure it out. And so I don't get paid for that. And my boss used to get mad at me and I'm, I'd be like, like, what are you paying me to do? You know, like, I can do that if you'd like, but you're going to need to adjust my pay because you partly pay me to sell stuff and I get paid a commission for that. So I need to, I need to raise to account for the lack of time I can do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, um, so I actually took it probably a little bit too far than what people should do I'd, for anyone listening. <laughs> I don't recommend necessarily doing what I did. I was, uh, I went, I, w I was, pr I went pretty extreme on it. I basically was like, unless someone calls and asks to give me money, I don't want to talk to them. I'll call them back. It's not important to me. Don't come to my office. Don't, I didn't say that nicely, but like, don't transfer clients to me. Don't transfer potential customers. Just I'll call them back. Don't bother me. Um, find a more uh, democratic way to do it. Yeah, I, I was just kind of an asshole about it, <laughs> <laughs> but I needed to make a change and I was really unhappy with where I was at. And so that was the easiest thing for me was just to like scorched earth. Like no one talked to me for the next like nine months so I can do my job <laughs> <laughs> and it worked, but, uh, not the people weren't very happy with me afterwards <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't, well, you know, it wasn't the right way to handle it. <laughs> Along those lines, I, I am very, another thing to be grateful for is, uh, you know, communications technology in general have made it so that just about everything can be an asynchronous communication, meaning, yeah. uh, you know, synchronous would be a phone call or a Skype like we're doing now. Uh, and it's, it's real time versus asynchronous would be a text. You send me a message. I read it. I get back to you when I feel like it. And then you get back to me when you feel like it, et cetera. Right. Um, so it's not happening simultaneously. Um, and because of that, I very rarely answer my phone. Yeah, me too. That's, that's what voicemails for. Let me, let me know what's going on. Um, and I'm, I'm not always super quick to get back with text messages because I, I really do not like being interrupted when I'm deep into a project of some sort. Me too. Um, and, and the thought that somebody else is going to cause my device to make a noise or vibrate and interrupt what it is I'm doing, I'm not really down with that. Um, only because we have the tools. I mean, this is if it's truly urgent, you're probably going to call back a couple of times and I'll get the hint. But otherwise, it's not urgent. It's not important. I'll get back to you when I can. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, when we had, uh, we had Sean Carter on a couple weeks ago 
and uh before we were um setting up we were, we were text you and him and i were texting to set everything up and he i'm looking for the text right now oh wait, um, so he text like an old lady yeah he's like you text like <laughs> <laughs> see if i can make it before too much quiet time it says bo i know you text like an old lady but i need to know your schedule soon <laughs> <laughs> and that's true he's given me shit for it before because like he'll text me or something and then i'll see sometimes i'll even see the text it kind of depends oftentimes i don't but and then i'll remind myself like i'm in the middle of something i'm like i'll get back to him if i see it i'm like i'm in the middle of something i'll go back to him when i'm done and then like three days go by and then i remember that he texted me and this all happened with my mom my, my other friends who don't do jujitsu, um, who I grew up with, um, the only person I don't do this with is my girlfriend, uh, cause I love her more than everyone else. And I live with her. So <laughs> it's important. Yeah. It, it's, it's important, uh, that she doesn't think I'm ignoring her. Um, <laughs> but, uh, among other things, you know, but I don't like to ignore her, but, uh, I don't like to ignore most people, but you know, since I like her more than my friends, I, I want her in particular, you know, to, to feel like I'm listening and to know that I'm listening. But yeah, that, uh, that makes me chuckle. Cause like I, I forget to text and then Sean gives me shit for it. And he's like, you're an old lady. Like, do you know how phones work? <laughs> <laughs> I would say well, once... you know, that's, that's a signal to the urgency. It's like, Hey, this right. is time sensitive. And like, Oh, right. okay. Well, once in that a, case, I'll get back to you. Yeah. Once a month I get a text from, uh, um, two of my, two of my close friends. We've been best friends since we were 12 since the seventh grade. And, um, once a month, I'll get a text from one of them because we're on a group chat together and, and it'll just be, Bo, are you still alive? That's the text. Because inevitably what will happen is like they'll be texting back and forth and I'll forget to text them back for like three days. Because maybe like it isn't directly related to me or like I don't have anything really to say or yeah. um, or I'm busy and um, or I forget. And then or a couple of days have gone by and we haven't texted and one of them will be like, are you alive, Bo? And it's like, yeah, I'm here. Just. I don't, you know, care about soccer and you guys are talking about soccer. So I just let you chat for a couple of days about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I but. think that's important. I've got friends like that as well. Like, uh, you know, if somebody falls off the grid, so to speak, and I don't hear from them, hear from them for a long time, um, certain friends, that's not concerning at all. Yeah, I'm I like that. that you know, yeah. Sometimes they just unplug like, OK, not a big deal. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm like that. And uh, it's it's interesting so my girlfriend and I, we, uh, we go to Chelan often. So her, uh, parents have a, a house out there and, uh, on the lake and, you know, it's a three, four hour drive. And so we'll listen to podcasts and we like to listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. So people, mm. you know, uh, amateur sleuths who try and yeah. solve old cold crimes and stuff, cold cases. And they're super interesting, but there's like a common theme that comes up with a lot of them. There's many common themes, but one of the common themes is, um, people not hearing back from their friend and then calling the police and being like, this person's missing. Right. That's like a common one. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. It, in most of the crimes, it's like virtually all women. Um, but uh, every now and again, there, there's a boy, but it, uh, whatever the case, it's usually like, you know, I haven't heard from my friend in like a day or six hours or eight hours, or, you know, my sister didn't call me today and it's noon. Like she's been kidnapped and it, you know, she always texts. <laughs> One of them actually in particular was like, my sister always texts me in the morning and she didn't text me. It's like, I think she's been kidnapped. And then sure enough, like the, she went on a date last night, didn't get back, like all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, we listen to them and, you know, they, uh, my girlfriend, she's always like, you know, if something like that happens to you. Like you're, no one's going to know for like a week. 
<laughs> she's like, if I'm, she's like, if I'm gone, your parents and your friends aren't going to know for like a week or two, maybe longer because they just won't, if you don't get back to them in like seven days, like it's not, it's a, not an abnormal thing. You know, I've gone yeah. three, I've gone three months without calling my mom. And then we just both get busy. Yeah. And that, that's when I, when I think about that, it's kind of scary. It's like, well, if I'm ever abducted, like I'm already dead before, before my family, <laughs> before my family even knows I'm gone, I'm already dead because it's been well, so I'm, much time, so much time will have passed. <laughs> I have to make it a point to not get abducted. Yeah. Right. So, um, I wanted to, uh, uh, before we close, uh, I remembered that I was going to mention the story, um, uh, the gratitude story of work and how it pertains to my girlfriend and I dating. So, uh, she, um, I was a salesman in my, my, my office and she was hired over the summer when she was in college to be the receptionist, um, which has a whole host of other jokes. If you ever watch the office because of Jim and Pam, um, this is separate from that. That's why you guys like that so much. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I I just think it's a good show and, but, um, it's always very funny, but, uh, because, because of that relationship, but, um, we had this, uh, um, team building exercise at my boss's, my old, our old boss's house. And, um, we had a whole bunch of exercises, but one of the exercises we all had to spend a couple of minutes and write down one thing that we liked or were grateful of or whatever about every single person that we worked with. And, um, at this point we weren't dating and, um, I, I give her a little bit of crap about this, but I was pretty sure she liked me at the time. And, um, but I was, I, I was not returning any of the affections, um, one, she was going back to college and she was going to college out of state. So that didn't seem, seemed unrealistic. And then two, I was actually genuinely concerned my boss would fire me if we dated, if it would, if it would have progressed that far, I didn't know if it would at the time, but, um, you know, and, and so we actually went a long time before we started dating, like well after she left working. Um, cause I didn't, I was actually genuinely concerned about that, but so we're going around and we're talking about the things that we like about each other or whatever. And, uh, it's her turn and she's going through hers and she gets to me and she says that, um, the, one of the things she likes about me is that I'm serious, but light, like light, like, like hearted or like a light mm. Bobby Trump. And I think she meant like lighthearted, serious, but light. And sitting directly next to her was, um, our oldest coworker uh, named Marilyn. She was like in her late seventies, very old or quite old. And, <laughs> and she actually had, was kind of hard of hearing and she's right next to my girlfriend and she turns to her and she says, did you just say he was a serious butt wipe? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so everyone died. Like everyone died of laughter from this because they sound exactly the same. Sure. Especially if you say it with any kind of speed, they sound exactly the same. And so that has become a, uh, a joke of ours for the last like eight years now. <laughs> Serious about what? All right. Yeah. And so, um, I like it. yeah, it's, uh, I actually, um, hopefully she doesn't listen to this podcast because I, I got her a present for Christmas this year and on it, it, I put that it's from a serious butt wipe. Nice. Uh, so that'll, that'll hopefully she'll, she'll probably like that, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's cute. Like so that, that, that's, that's the gratitude, right? That she showed me is by calling me a butt wife. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But so yeah, that'll, if, if, and when she does listen to this, that'll embarrass her. So that'll be fun. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, um, that, uh, that actually 
we went through all of my notes. That's the first time that's happened. So, oh, fantastic. Um, that's what happens when I only write 1200 words with the notes. <laughs> I don't even know what 1200 words looks like. I don't write enough to be counting my words. It's, uh, <laughs> it's about two, two and a half pages typed. Oh, yeah. it, it, it'd probably be closer to two pages fully typed, but I have indents and paragraphs and spaces and stuff. So it's two and a half. Um, gotcha. So it took me like half an hour. Not, not a lot. Okay. Had I spent more time, I would have had like five or six probably. Wow. I'm a, but, I'm a bullet point kind of guy. You <laughs> see, I use uh, I use Evernote pretty regularly yeah. and it's usually just a run on of bullets, either bullets or check marks. Yeah. If I've got a packing list for an event or something. Uh, yeah. I, the first, uh, the first podcast we did, I did that, um, which we didn't air. The first one's the one we did outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, uh, done bullet points and then I actually didn't take them with me cause we were outside, but, um, I had them in my head and I realized that what happens is all of the bullet points and then I'll have an idea about them, but I don't want to forget how I phrase and like articulate and construct the idea. So I'll try and type it out. Yeah. And I actually oftentimes won't even read. Sometimes I'll read verbatim what I've written, but oftentimes I'll change what I've written because how I thought, how I think about it, say right now versus when I wrote it a couple of days ago will change. Sure. But I want to know kind of what it is I was thinking exactly so that I can adjust it and, and get to the bottom of where my brain was at on, you know, in this case on Monday, because otherwise I might forget, like I'm busy and my brain's everywhere all the time. I'm always thinking. So I don't want to, cause maybe I come across a good idea and if I don't articulate it, I may just lose the idea. It just goes away. And then we're talking about it and I can't remember what it was I wanted to say. And so that's actually why I write so much for these is because, and probably why we don't even get to half of them is because we just never talk about it or the idea, I don't like it anymore. doesn't hold any weight or sometimes you'll bring something up that uh, is a good explanation for why whatever idea I would explain wouldn't work. And so I don't even go into the idea because it's like, okay, well, that, that actually answers the question of why I formulated that idea. And okay, so there's yeah. no, there's no reason to, to go on with the 500 words I wrote about this idea because we've kind of, <laughs> we've already, ta- you know, we've already tackled it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, I, I find that it's more helpful for me to do it that way. Um, but I'm also like, we've talked about before, I like to read versus listen, um, to like books and I'm the same yeah. way with writing. I like to write stuff out so that I can read it and uh, it helps me internalize it, um, better. And then I can also cross out and revise and go through and change and, um, kind of add to it and, and stuff like that. And so, um, it just helps kind of get everything out of my head and flesh it out a little bit better. Sure. But makes sense. Sweet. Oh, would you have anything else or should we, uh, I think this is good for this one. Sweet. Yeah. Well, everybody, this is episode 15 of the beyond red and blue podcast where we talked 15 about already. Wow. 15. All right. Chugging right along. Yeah, um, I think fifteen total weeks. Exactly. I think we've skipped a week. So, nope. um, so we got thirty-seven more till we get to right. a year. Till we get to a year, which is crazy. <laughs> and so, uh, dude, I love it. <laughs> All right, everybody. All right, Thank you very much for listening. Hope you have a good rest of the morning, afternoon, or evening. And uh, stay tuned for, I believe, next week, possibly the week after, we will have. Uh, resident black belt Trino Mendoza on uh, to talk about some jujitsu stuff, talk about what he likes to do, talk about his the food he likes to eat. Cause he likes the keto style foods like I do. 
and kind of just get his philosophies on life. That's going to be super exciting. Um, yeah, that's it. There we go. Have a good rest of the day, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye. <laughs>